Amen. Thank you, choir. I just want to acknowledge that is the first time we have heard the choir in this space since pre-COVID. Let us thank the choir for the gift of their music today. I can't think of a more fitting song to have fill our sanctuary uh, than it is well with my soul. Let's go to God in prayer. Holy and gracious God. Whether we find ourselves on peaceful waters this morning or feeling as though we are caught in the midst of a hurricane storm, would you meet us again, O oh God? Allow our souls to be well, to face the future unafraid. God, for the words of your servant Paul, written to a church in Philippi, would you allow these words to resonate with us, to leap off of the pages of our Bibles and into our hearts so that they would change the way that we live? We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus the Christ. Amen. Weird pivot. Has, does anybody remember the show Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman? Anybody? Didn't think we were starting there today, did you? No. No, seriously, nobody? Remember, the 90s show on ABC, Sundays at 8, 7 Central. Don't wave your hands. Folks online can't see your hands raised. Do you remember the show, Lois and Clark, New Adventures of Superman? If you do, say, I do. That's not nearly enough of you. It is a classic. It's so good. My wife is obsessed with this show. She was obsessed with this show from an early age. It was only on for four seasons, but I believe it's her favorite show of all time. She has all the box sets uh, on DVD in our house. Uh, she was so obsessed that when it was uh, canceled, she actually wrote a ransom letter to the producers at ABC. I married her, yes, um, after knowing this about her. Uh, you're welcome, Reagan, for telling that on you in front of the church. Um, we were watching it recently because uh, Newsflash, it is now on HBO Max, uh, which is weird. I feel like I've mentioned HBO Max a few times in the last several months. I'm not being sponsored by them or anything. This is a really good library of media. So, of course, we're watching it, right? We're watching, um, I say we are watching it. Reagan is watching it, and I have my AirPods in listening to a podcast because it's not a good show. Like, it's definitively, objectively, a bad television show. Um, there's a reason why Dean Cain is not like a global megastar uh, these days, right? Um, but Reagan's obsessed with it. We had a family friend over the other day and Reagan had it on. And uh, this friend is several years younger than us, so she had never seen the show, had never heard of this show. And she was struck by how optimistic the tone of this show is, right? Um, think about Superman and like Metropolis and this sort of like idea that like things are always getting better, like the future is bright, the future is one full of optimism. And, and it was so fitting for the 90s, because do you remember the 90s? Do you remember how optimistic we were in the 90s? The Cold War had just ended, right? Everything was getting better. We thought, man, things are going to be so great. And then the last 25 years happened, right? How wrong were we about that? Now, if, if you were to ask somebody in the 90s, and they did polls on this, is the future getting better or worse? They would say, oh, the future's getting better. In fact, media would represent that. If you looked at movies or TV shows set in the future in that decade, everything was shiny and new and futuristic and fun. And nowadays, if we have movies about the future, what's the tone, right? It's like Mad Max. It's like dystopia, and everything's falling apart and crumbling, and it's just a hellscape of fire, right? That's how we feel about the future today. 
And so as we wrap up our series, this worship series called Blessed Are the Uncomfortable, let's talk about stepping into an uncomfortable or uncertain or even, let's be honest, a fearful future. Because if I were to ask you what adjectives would you use to describe the future today, if we did a poll in this room, I imagine I could guess some of the words, and optimistic probably wouldn't be a common one. If that resonates with you, say amen. There's a lot of anxiety, a lot of fear, a lot of worry. Even let's center ourselves like in today, right? In the midst of a Delta surge that we don't know what the end in sight looks like. And, and difficult questions around kids in schools and what does the future mean? And, you know, we're about to enter into in a year from now another election cycle. Remember how fun the last one was? And there are people making bomb threats at the Capitol. And we think to ourselves, what does the future look like and feel like? What does our faith have to hold for us? What does our faith say and speak into these kinds of moments as we turn our eyes to the future? To help us in our wrestling with this topic, we're going to look at the Apostle Paul's letters to the church in Philippi. The Apostle Paul was that early Christian leader uh, who was something of a church planter and church consultant. He would write letters that are now in our New Testament. He would write letters to churches, uh, counseling them, advising them about how to move forward. And the church in Philippi was a church that he loved deeply. In fact, if we turn to chapter 4, which is our text today, and we begin in uh, verse 1, he says this, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and miss, who are my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord. Sounds like Paul really loves this church, right? Yeah, I'm sure the church in Philippi was going, oh, he says that to all the churches, you know. My love and joy whom I miss, my joy and crown. Paul doesn't say this to everybody. If you've read any of Paul's writings, you know that Paul can lay in pretty hard to the churches that he's writing to. But the church in Philippi, he is a deep, deep love for. They are special to him, and I'll tell you why. The Philippian church was one of the first churches that Paul planted, one of the first Christian communities that he helped to foster. And as a result, they became something like a partner with him in ministry, going so far as to financially support him, which was a big deal because the church in Philippi was not a wealthy church. It was comprised of very diverse people, but largely poor people and even some slaves. And they, but they so believed in the work that Paul was doing. They so believed in the gift of this Christian movement and what it had meant for their local community that they were willing to be generous and to invest in Paul's ministry. And so Paul had felt the love, so to speak, from the Philippian church for a long time. Whenever he was in trouble, the Philippian church would send people to help him. They would send resources to help him. Paul loved the Philippian church. He knew that something special was happening there. And Paul's writing this letter from a jail cell. That's the other important piece of information for us to know as we read further in chapter 4. He's not writing this on the road to another church destination. He's writing this from a jail cell, and eventually he will be killed from that jail cell. He's writing this uh, in chains. He's writing this in a position of torture. And the story is not going to have a quote-unquote happy ending for Paul. And that's important for us to know because what he's about to say could sound syrupy and saccharine and sweet if we don't understand who is writing it and who he's writing it to. This is a man in prison in chains writing to a people who are not in a position of privilege. And he's going to talk about these themes of peace and joy and strength in Christ. And they mean something different when we understand who the author is and who the audience is. So continuing in verse 4, Paul says this, Be glad in the Lord always. Again, I say be glad. Maybe you've heard the phrase rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice. That comes from here. Let your gentleness show in your treatment of all people. 
the Lord is near. Don't be anxious about anything, Paul says. Rather, bring up all of your requests to God in your prayers and petitions along with giving thanks. Then the peace of God that exceeds all understanding, perhaps you've heard it phrased, the peace that passes understanding, will keep your hearts and minds safe in Christ Jesus. You know, words are important. And some of these words, you may be thinking, okay, Paul's telling me to stop being anxious and to find peace and joy. Oh, thank you, Paul. That is easier said than done, right? Now, let's be clear about what Paul's not speaking into. You know, Paul's not a psychologist or a psychiatrist. He's not talking about clinical anxiety or depression, things that I live with as well. And maybe you're sitting there going, Pastor, is this about to be a sermon about, you know, let go of your depression, anxiety, and just cling to Jesus? No. We're not talking about those specific examples, those more clinical examples of anxiety or depression. When we talk about joy and peace and anxiety in Paul's language, he's speaking about that more universal experience. That even when I'm in my healthiest place, I can still be anxious around things in my life. Even when I'm in the healthiest place, I can still rob myself of joy, right? We're talking about the more general experiences of what it means to be human and to fall into anxiety over our personal security and well-being and instead to be moving towards these greater ideals of peace and joy. But it's the words that he uses and the way he uses them that's really interesting here. For instance, this word for anxious it's, it's not a general anxiety. It's more anxiousness about myself, my needs, my wants, my desires, my security, my well-being, right? We're hearing this a lot right now in the conversation around COVID of the, the debate between uh, wearing masks for the communal safety versus me and my choices. This is a personal choice. This is my choice to live my life. And we talked last week about how nobody is an island unto themselves. So I encourage you to listen to that message as well. Paul's really speaking into that kind of mentality of a me-first and me-centric mentality because he uses that same word for don't be anxious. That same word anxious shows up two chapters earlier when he's talking about the apostle Timothy, and he's uplifting Timothy's characteristic of being anxious or concerned for others. He's talking about the, the blessing and the beauty of Timothy's care and compassion and concern for the people around him. So Paul's not saying stop caring, right? Sometimes I'll hear pastors talk about this text, and, and the effect is either, um, you know, uh, we're supposed to give up anxiety and just hold on to Jesus and trust everything's going to work out. Sometimes it doesn't, Right? Or the other is, well, just we just need to detach ourselves and just stop having anxiety, stop caring, Right? This notion of, of not caring is not what Paul's talking about. He's saying care less about the self, care more about the us, right? If you're going to have anxiety, if you're going to have care, think about where that care is directed first and foremost. Think about where your anxieties lie. It should bother us. It should create anxiety within us to see people clinging to airplanes as they fly off the airbase in Kabul, Afghanistan. That should, we should care about that. We should care about the ICU beds in North Texas and in the larger country that are filled to the brim and over, and over capacity because we can't get a handle on this current Delta surge. We should care about that. Paul is calling us to be a caring people, but to be careful about whom we care for first and primarily and perhaps only. Because Paul understands in those days what can be true today is that we can fall into that trap of thinking that I'm the most important thing and the world revolves around me. And so then my anxieties naturally focus on myself as well. 
He's calling them to be others-oriented. That word gentleness, he says, be glad, let your gentleness show in your treatment of all people. That word gentleness, a better translation could be generosity. He's saying, Philippian people, remember who you are. Remember that you're a people who you look to pour yourselves out. You look to make yourself about others in the world. Continue to lean into that. Don't fall into the trap of personal anxiety. And then he calls them to these words of peace and joy. Peace and joy. I don't know about you, but peace and joy have not been uh, close friends to my soul in recent weeks. Have they been to yours? I haven't known an exceeding abundance of peace and joy recently. Am Am I alone in that? Can I at least see some head nods if that's you? I know we're still learning to say amen here. Um, Paul's not talking about peace and joy in maybe the way that we're thinking about it. When Paul talks about peace that passes understanding, let's remember who Paul is in this moment. Paul is a man sitting imprisoned and in in chains. These words would ring hollow if I was the one speaking them. I, I occupy a lot of privileges in life. I check a lot of those boxes. Paul is in prison and in chains and awaiting an execution. And he, with that experience, is saying, try to find a peace that passes understanding. Even when you're not certain what the future holds, even when you don't know it's all going to work out, even when you're pretty sure it's not, try to find this peace, a deeper peace, something bigger than whatever your current circumstances are, something broader and wider and more cosmic than whatever that day holds for you. Try to find a peace that is bigger than your understanding of what's happening in this moment. And then on the subject of joy, Paul's writing this this community in Philippi that is impoverished, many of whom are enslaved, and he has the audacity to point them towards joy. What are you talking about, Paul? But Paul's not talking about a happiness that comes from material, momentary things. He's not talking about a happiness that is swayed by our current circumstances. See, in those days in the land of Philippi, there very likely was this uh, philosophy of Epicureanism or even hedonism where life was about seeking happiness, momentary, materialistic happiness, and that was the secret to joy in this life. And he's saying, no, you need to find something deeper than that level of superficial happiness because that will come and go. Let me tell you. The key for Paul to to accessing the kind of peace that passes understanding and a joy that transcends situational happiness, the key for Paul is gratitude. Did you hear what he told them to do? He told them to do one thing. He said, go to God in prayer. And yeah, make, make whatever requests you need to make. Pray for yourself. Pray for those in your community. But always go and give thanks. That's what Paul says. Give thanks. Paul's tapping into a truth that though he's not a psychiatrist or a psychologist, it is is an eternal, ancient truth that we continue to discover and uncover today. I was reading a Harvard Health article um, that just came out uh, about a week ago, and it was talking about two psychologists, Dr. Robert A. Emmons of the UC Davis Uh, University, and Dr. Michael E. McCullough of the University of Miami. And they did a study. They had three groups of people. Group one, they said, for several weeks, we're going to ask you to write down, uh, every once a week, we're going to ask you to write down things that you're grateful for. And then the second group, they said, each week, we're going to ask you to write down things that irritate or frustrate you. I would be good at that group, right? Week three, or uh, group three, we're going to ask you to write down things that have an impact on you regardless what that impact is, just things that impact your life and and, and whatever you interpret that to mean. 
And what they found is, and you might not be surprised to learn this, is that the group that, that expressed gratitude on a weekly basis intentionally sat down and thought, what am I grateful for? What, what am I going to express gratitude for? They, were not only, they, they not only experienced greater levels of happiness in their life, they also exercised more, and they had fewer visits to the doctor during the this, this study period, right? There were tangible effects on a life of gratitude that these psychologists discovered. Or maybe you're a fan of Brene Brown right? Who also is somebody who spent years studying these kinds of trends. And, and she said this in an article for Global Leaderships. She said, I wasn't expecting it, but in my 12 years of research on 11,000 pieces of data, she said, I did not interview one person who had described themselves as joyful, who also did not actively practice gratitude. For me, it was very counterintuitive because I went into the research thinking that the relationship between joy and gratitude was, if you're joyful, you should be grateful, but it wasn't that way at all. She said, instead, hear this, practicing gratitude invites joy into our lives. Paul would add the word peace to that list. He'd say, practicing gratitude invites joy and peace into our lives. Sometimes we wait for life to, to, to be so mountaintop high that we can finally feel grateful. But Paul is saying the secret actually is if you can find gratitude in the prison cell, if you can find gratitude in the community you have found, even though you may be marginalized, even though you may be oppressed, if you can find gratitude in those places, in those moments, in those valleys, then joy and peace are something that nothing and no one can take away from you. So Paul continues in verse 10. He says, I was very glad in the Lord because now at last you've shown concern again for me again. Of course, you were always concerned but had no way to show it. See, the church in Philippi had sent him a helper while he was in prison. He said, I'm not saying this because I need anything for I have learned how to be, be content in any circumstance. I know the experience of being in need and of having more than enough. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every circumstance, whether full or hungry or whether having plenty or being poor. And now the verse that birthed a million tea towels. I can endure all these things through the power of the one, Christ, who gives me strength, right? Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. How many of you, let's be honest, how many of you have something from Bed Bath & Beyond with those words on it in your home right now? It's okay. I'm not going to shame you. I'm not going to shame you. Thank you, David Gibson, for the hand in the back. I see you. I see you, my brother. So it is one of the more misapplied verses in Scripture, though, right? I've seen people quote this right before the big basketball game. I don't think Paul's talking about a basketball game, right? I've seen this verse quoted by folks that want to meet their sales quota for the first quarter of the year, right? That's not what Paul is talking about. Paul is not saying that I can have every victory in this life that I seek because Christ just makes me so awesome, right? That's not what he's getting after. He's writing this with chains on his hands, staring execution in the face and saying, I can transcend even this. Even this cannot rob my joy and my peace and my abundance. Even this cannot rob God's love from my life because I can do all things do you hear him now? I can do all things through the one who strengthens me. Paul's playing off this very popular philosophical idea uh, amongst the Stoics and Cynics who were uh, philosophical, those were philosophical trends in the days uh, of Paul. Um, I, I'm a cynic sometimes myself, anybody else in the room? Um, but one of, the, one of the big pillars of those philosophies was self-reliance, right? To not be moved or swayed by the environment around you because you were so self-reliant and self-assured, 
And so Paul's kind of taking that idea and saying, yeah, 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 I've got that kind of reliance, but actually it's not because of myself. It's because of the one who made me and loves me, redeems me, sustains me. That love is alive and at work in me, and that is why I can do all that I can do. I am self-reliant because myself is full of God. Do you hear how he's playing with these concepts? He's writing these words to a Christian community who have known and loved him as their leader for a long time and are probably stressed and concerned and anxious about his future. Have you ever been a part of an organization, a movement, a group, and suddenly the senior leader was gone? What does that do for the people that are left behind, right? Creates a lot of anxiety, creates a lot of fear, a lot of stress. And Paul's writing these words, not just for himself, but also to the Philippian church saying, as you face this future that you're stepping boldly into, as you step into the future without me, because I may not be coming back. He's not going to promise them some rainbows and sunshine. Everything's going to work out, Philippians. It's all going to be good. Every campaign you do is going to work. There's going to be more people in the pews every single Sunday. It's going to be awesome. He's saying, even if it's not. Even if the government tries to shut you down, even if you continue to be uh, impoverished, even if, even if, even if, even if, you can do this. You can be God's people. You can step faithfully into the future, not knowing what it holds and knowing it's going to hold both victories and defeats. You can step into that. You can do that, not because of you, but because of God in you. Do we hear these words today? Because I don't know about you, I am getting tired of people asking me what the future holds. People here in the church will say, so pastor, what's coming up? You know, how, how are we feeling about COVID? You know, are we gonna have to do this? Are we? I said, I got out of the soothsaying business a long time ago. I got no idea what six months from now holds. But I know that I like that we're holding it together. That gives me a lot more confidence because I see God alive in this body of believers. John Wesley's dying words, John Wesley was the founder of Methodism. His dying words were, the best of all is God is with us. And I hear that alive and well in the words of Paul here. So what do we do with this? What do we do with Paul's encouragement and conviction and comfort this morning? On the personal level, I think we have to recognize that we have been waiting for a new normal for far too long, right? Ever since COVID started, how much have you heard about getting back to a new normal? And then we thought when the summer got here and everything started to go down, we thought, oh, here it comes, here comes the new normal. And then about a month ago, we all realized, oh, crud, this is the new normal, right? Now, I don't want to throw a bucket of ice water on us this morning, but part of me believes that the new normal is living in a world of disruption and disorder and even downright chaos. And if we are waiting for the world to stop looking like that, we are going to find ourselves robbed of a whole lot of peace and joy. I think part of the normal is learning how to live in a time of disruption and disorder. And Paul tells us there are basically four different ways we can go about this. The first is we can give in to the anxiety. We can allow the circumstances to absolutely dictate how we respond and how we live. And I don't know about you, but I am flipping exhausted of living like that. Is anybody else exhausted? Can I, I don't need to hear an amen. Can I hear a... Uh, that isn't a desire and amen, that's a groan. Is anybody else exhausted by living this way? The second path is to be driven by delusion, right? Unfortunately, and I don't say this to be mean, I say this to underscore how dangerous this is. This is a lot of the people who are in ICU beds right now. God's gonna take care of me. 
everything's going to work out. My friends, sometimes things don't work out. Sometimes we think that God's going to protect us from everything in this life. And guess what? The world is not fair like that. It's not something where God only blesses those who are always faithful. That's prosperity gospel nonsense. We're not selling that here, right? We can't give into the delusion that if we just believe strong enough, then everything's always going to work out or you will be so disappointed and you will walk away from God furious. The third path option that we have is, is to be driven to detachment, where we stop caring entirely and stop believing that material world, including people, are important. And I'll hear people say, oh, I don't like to talk about that stuff. That's just uncomfortable. I don't like to get into politics. That makes me icky. I don't like to talk about these issues. That makes me... Guess what? We, we, we are not allowed to tune out. We are not allowed to check out. God loves the material world so much. God loves this tangible, incarnational soul world that God became human for our sake. And we think that we can detach and find God. That's hard to do, my friends. It's not about detaching and learning not to care. Paul instead offers us, instead of being driven by anxiety, being driven by delusion, or being driven by detachment, Paul offers us instead his path, which is to be grounded, and I use that word intentionally, grounded, real world, real life, real problems, real issues, real crises, real trauma, but to be grounded in gratitude to center yourself, to center myself, to center ourselves on what are those things that we can still hold and cling to and say, this is life and I'm grateful for this. And then to respond, again, words are important, to respond, not react, not a snap reaction. We got a lot of those today, but to respond in faith. Once I have grounded myself, once we've grounded ourselves in gratitude to understand where it is that we see God at work and how we are grateful for God's activity with us, then maybe we can see what those next faithful steps are. Maybe God's even giving us a vision of a path. So my question for us is, will, we, will AUMC continue to step boldly into an uncertain future with less anxiety and greater gratitude and compassion? And I believe the way that we do that is by relying on each other. I believe we do that best by being in community. We have changed a lot as a community over the last 18 months. This Richardson, North Dallas area where we sit is changing radically. We're growing more diverse. We're growing more economically diverse. People who are affluent are becoming more affluent. People who are poor are becoming more poor. And the question for us is who's gonna be that bridge? Who's gonna be that work? Who's gonna do that justice work to make sure that equity, equality, and justice can exist in our local area right here around this building? Because if we don't do it, my question is, who is? Where are those spaces where diversity can mix and mingle? Where are those spaces where justice and equity can find roots? I believe it's here. But then we also have to remember that we are bigger than just this building. My online friends who are watching right now, yeah, I'm talking to you. That's weird. I'm in your TV screen right now. Hey, Jim. I don't know if there's a Jim watching, but if there is, he's freaked out right now. There are a lot of people watching right now that nobody in this room is aware of. In fact, this may be your very first Sunday watching us online. Let me tell you something. I know that online streaming has changed the way we are as a community of faith because it has opened up a new huge front door to people that otherwise never would have entered this building. Why? Because churches have hurt them in the past. They are not looking for church as usual because church as usual was church trauma. I'm also speaking specifically about our LGBTQ visitors who I know there are plenty because this is a safe way for you to interact with and engage with a church. 
My prayer is that you would bless us by letting us know what you see, what you're grateful for, and how we could be even greater together. And let us not just be limited to those of us who are in the room. I believe we're a better church the more we can become relevant and different and distinct and to meet people exactly like you, Jim. No. I hope that all of us can see our partnership in this ministry together. I hope that you can share with me and the pastors and staff here, ministry leaders here, what you're grateful for, both here at AUMC and in your communities. And I hope you can also be bold enough to offer what might be our next faithful step. I am not the only one. Pastor Maggie's not the only one. Pastor Kathy's not the only one who has vision and eyes to see and ears to hear. Help us to be a better community together, to step boldly into an uncertain future together, to be a Philippian-style church together. May we be grounded in gratitude, alive in our faith. And though we may be facing an uncomfortable or uncertain future with God, we face it with God and with each other and with peace and with joy through all and every season. Amen.